Right, folks. Hey, uh, welcome to Talk Store with your host, Dave Dewan. And I'm in the Big Island studio today, and we have Bevan McKinnon in his North Island studio. Welcome on board, <laughs> Bevan. Hello, Dave. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Hey, look, and today's topic is called Fitter and Wiser. Now, put the wiser, and if my, and if my research is correct, you turn 50 next year? Oh, well done. Yes, yeah. I do. So I give do. me two, one or two things that you're wiser, wiser about now than you were maybe... 10 or even 15 or even 20 years ago? Patience, uh, definitely. And I think uh, that goes from a professional perspective and also just from a personal perspective. And uh, looking at the big picture and not getting caught up in, in the minute details of the day-to-day -day would be two things. I think uh, I've learned as I, as I, radar in on that five zero uh, <laughs> birthday um, because I think you know it is only with age that you gain perspective and when you're younger uh, you you just really don't have the miles on the clock um, and I think if you when you start to realize that uh, early enough like some people that it's past 50 it's not until they get to 60 that they sort of start to 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 gain that perspective if you can if you can look over your shoulder um, as well as in front of you um, and understand you know that your past um, doesn't influence your future if you can sort of let go of all the all the things that you worry about or stress about or um, uh, feel guilty about or uh, you know angst about um, that they can't affect what you do in this present moment and what you do in this present moment is going to impact what happens in the future. Um, I think that the, the sooner you can realize that as you, as you age, the better, um, because you'll just make better decisions on a day-to-day -day basis um, and not be impacted, as I say, by, by um, all the things that you, all the, that little tape that plays in the back of your head about all the things that you, you should have done. And yeah, you could the, have done the woulda, shoulda, coulda stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah, cool, and mate. patience. Yeah, yeah patience. patience. Nothing, nothing changes. Um, nothing changes too quickly. No, let's just look back a little bit. Let's get in the rear vision mirror for a second. As a child, do you were you into sports as a kid? Oh yeah, what absolutely. Everything. Um, I think I realised very early on that. Uh, uh, it, it was a, the thing that really gave me the greatest sense of pleasure. Um, and it didn't mean, uh, it wasn't like my, I mean, actually my grandfather was a big influence on me because he was into athletics and I remember, and he was actually a track and field coach and one of New Zealand's most qualified track and field coaches. Not that I ever went down the athletics pathway. I did a bit when I was a kid. Um, but I always was just fascinated at his uh, he was just so inquisitive about um, training and exercise and it sort of, whether it rubbed off on me consciously or not consciously, but I just remember from a very young age, I was always enamored with, uh, with exercise and sport and, and just the, you know, just expressing yourself um, physically. Um, it's not like I wasn't, uh, I, you know, school I was bad at school or anything like that but it was where I just found my greatest pleasure so I, I was a, a football or soccer player played tennis uh, cricket um, you know triathlon became something in my in my teens 
uh, table tennis, uh, you name it, um, I think I played it. And at some point in my early years, probably played it to a, a reasonably high standard or actually quite a high standard because I ended up representing my, my city in nearly all of those sports <laughs> that I mentioned. So, so I knew that I had a bit of a talent for sport when I was young. What about academic-wise? Were you aware of your academic? Yeah, I was, um, I was very... I realised I had a good, what I call an antenna. So um, I could, depending, without working hard, I, I picked up on a lot of information. But what I didn't have was the work ethic for study. So um, it wasn't like I was unintelligent uh, and, uh, you know, uh, but I never, if, if you wanted to take my work ethic, it went into sport and not into school. Um, and we were, you'd be, a you're a little bit older than I, but you, at that particular time in life, university wasn't a big thing in, in New Zealand. So you sort of went off and got a trade, you know, getting, getting past 15 years of age at school. <laughs> if you're still at school, was it was actually a big thing? Um, if you went to university, I mean, oh wow, that was <laughs> that was a whole different beast. So I sort of got past fifteen, barely, and then um, and then that was it for for me in school. I stayed two more years, but just really to represent the school at different sports. Where, so where were you? Where were you raised? Where were you born? Um, so Whangarei, which is uh, up above Auckland here by about 160 kilometres, so so in the in the top of the North Island. And you've always been up there. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, left school um, at at 18. Uh, did two years working for an insurance broker, and then um, my friends who I'd been at school with had gone through university, and then we upsticked and um, did our OE, and so we flew across to the UK. Um, but I was fortunate enough because my grandfather was born in Scotland, I could get an extended visa. So my OE ended up being basically my twenties were spent in the UK. <laughs> in the UK, yeah. and at that point, at that point, still doing sport, but I was actually probably more focused on um, building up my capacity as a drinker at that particular point. <laughs> it takes a bit of practice, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it does take a bit of practice, um, but I have learnt from my the error of my ways. What were you doing in what, so what were you doing when you're in England work-wise? Uh, anything really. Um, yeah. It's interesting when you go with uh, friends who are all university qualified, and you're the only one that isn't. Um, you end up working at the bottom of the food chain, and they end up working at the top of the food chain. So what we could afford to do um, was was distinctly <laughs> different at different levels. Uh, so I think I worked. I, I think my most glorious job was um, I managed to secure a job. Uh, one of the last ones I left had I'd worked through factories and insurance brokers and stuff like that. But I managed to I managed to get a job as a ticket collector on a, the newly built Heathrow Express, which was actually a train that ran from Paddington Station to Heathrow Airport, and it was a direct train. And my, my uh, job was to stand on the platform, um, sell tickets, uh, and then sit on the train, zip out to Heathrow, and then repeat the, repeat the process back into Paddington day in, day out. But, but actually, at that particular time, I don't know how I managed to get this job. Every other job, I was getting paid something like five pounds an hour. But because this was meant to be just a temporary job, they were paying 10 pounds an hour. Now, back then, it's that a was... 
it was an unfeasible amount of money. It was almost as, as much as my, my, my university qualified friends were being paid. So I was very, um, I worked every hour under the sun on that job. And I thought I was um, something special being a, a ticket collector on a train. I did, I, when I was in London, I did the same. I, I ended up, um, I did, I think it was four or five days at Cadbury's. They'd give me a ticket, go and get all these, <laughs> get a pinky, get all these things, put them on the trolley. Okay, I've done yeah. that. Here's another ticket. And I thought, I thought four days, it just did my head in. Oh, well, that's, um, I tell you, I, I have an appreciation for shift workers. Um, yeah. I, I did, I did uh, shift work, so nights and days when I, I lived in Wales for a lot, for the majority of actually my time overseas, I lived in Wales, but I have a, a huge appreciation for how tough living is um, as, a, as the working class, uh, the UK sort of um, that make up the greater percentage of the population. But the, the, the worst job I had, and it's a cracker, uh, I worked for a, a plastic manufacturer in Wales and they were 12 hour shifts, um, either six in the morning till six at night or six at night till six in the morning. And this is when the, it goes dark at about 3.30. <laughs> so at points, at points, I was not seeing any sunlight for weeks on end. Um, but the plastic manufacturer made the, the backs of the casing for the old TVs that were big, deep TVs. And I would sit... Um, at the, at underneath a machine that would make one of these back casings every sort of 45 to 60 seconds and it would come off the machine and my job was to take a pen knife and trim any excess plastic that had slipped outside the molding um, which generally happened probably one in every maybe three or four molds that came off um, and I, and that was, that would be for 12 hours straight. And then I'd pack it onto a crate and I had two 20 minute breaks in 12 hours. Um, oh, and God. it was the most, um, mind numbingly soul destroying <laughs> job I'd ever had in my life. Like within the first 45 minutes of a 12 hour shift, you were bored out of your skull. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> look, how, look how you turned out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Plenty of thinking time, Dave. <laughs> okay, plenty so let's thinking move on. Time. What happened after you left the UK? When did you come back? To, you came back to New Zealand? Yep. So I was probably 28, 29. And, and that was the big t opportunity for me to actually realize that the only thing that I was truly passionate about, and it was a big uh, chance to redefine my working future, um, I, and and personal training had probably popped up as as a as a bit of a valid career path, and I didn't want to go back to university. It was too too late in the piece to study um, like three or four years, so I thought, look, I'll I'll do a really robust personal training qualification, and I will get into that field because I thought, you know, that's that's you know you know there's plenty of gyms, plenty of opportunity there. So that's what I did. Uh, so I did a, a personal training qualification, but I never ended up working as a personal trainer. I ended up getting, luckily enough, a job at a local pool that had a gym, and the, it was a council-run pool, but they had one opportunity for a personal trainer to have a contract at that particular facility, 
and they could do anything they liked in, under the guise of personal training. Um, and so the guy that had it before me was a triathlete and he, he shoulder tapped me and said, you want to reply for this job because I've started a, a swim teaching or a one-on-one -on -one swim coaching business under the guise of personal training. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm killing it. Um, right. So he left, I applied, I got the job and I just pretty much did the same thing as what he did. And so, and then made the personal training contract predominantly swim teaching. Um, and I, I really sat on the side of the pool as a lifeguard as well, but just studied the, the competitive swim squads. So I had hours and hours of time just watching swimming um, studying what this coaches did, watching the competitive swimmers, trying to work out what made their stroke different to, you know, the, the, the adult fitness swimmers. And so I, I did that for about six or seven years, actually, um, and ended up building the swimming business to, to being, you know, quite a, a profitable little business. Um, and that was, that was really how I started to get into the fitness and, and coaching side. And at the same time, sort of picked up a few triathletes along the way and, and started to broaden my skill set. So I never actually personally trained um, if you, in the classical sense, but I, I became a swimming and triathlon coach. Um, that's where it all started. You're going to hear um, some roosters in the background. Oh, that reminds me of the island. The, That's good. No, just, just a, there's no fences. They just wander around. So perfect, perfect. I don't have a, um, what do you um, sounded in here, Chris? I don't have one of those. I'm just me. So I don't. <laughs> I don't edit or filter. Perfect. It comes out as it is. So perfect. You don't want to. It becomes too big a job. I do it. <laughs> so when you were doing the, the swim stuff, were you actually then doing triathlon as well? Were you racing then, or had you started to race? Um, so I raced as it. So when I was. 16, I used to have a paper round here in New Zealand. So for those people that don't know, um, we used to throw a, a, like a canvas sack across the, these, uh, the back of your, your bike and you'd fill it up with um, newspapers and then you'd have a, a route that you took it around and delivered it to people's houses. And I distinctly remember the day that I looked in the back of the, the Northern Advocate was, was what I actually delivered. And I saw an advert for uh, the Whangarei Triathlon. And it was an Olympic distance triathlon. And at the time, um, uh, I remember when I was, used to play football when I was young. Um, and, and when I was 12 or 13, I used to formally run train on my own. I, like I'd go out and I'd run four times a week and I had a little... I had a little notebook that I would write down every street that I ran up, um, every corner I turned, um, how fast I ran, all that kind of stuff. And I remember my, my football coach at the time saying to the group of, of, of uh, representative football players that I was in, he said, he said you, every one of you should look at Bevan and, and try to train for your, your soccer like Bevan does. He goes running on his own and all this kind of stuff. So I was, I was already sort of biking for... for my my paper round I was running for soccer and I could I, I could swim relatively well so I did that when I did a, at 16 I did my first triathlon in a in a dive no I think I wore board shorts I can't remember it was, it was ridiculous as it was a story that anyone who's ever done triathlon as long as me will say that's how they start yeah. as well um I did it in the UK a little bit um so we did have a like the UK you know at that particular time um had a very strong triathlon uh 
you know, community and as it does today. So I had done it a little bit on and off through the UK. Um, but when I came back and I started doing the swim coaching and so forth, I thought, I'm going to give Ironman a crack. I'd always wanted to do an Ironman. Um, and so I thought, uh, okay, I'll, I'll coach myself to an Ironman. And so it was a New Zealand Ironman and I trained up and um, I did uh, – I had no idea, obviously, um, even though I'd had a personal training qualification, definitely wasn't well, well suited towards endurance coaching. And, um, and yeah, got back into doing an Ironman. I did no triathlons here in New Zealand until the New Zealand Ironman. And, um, and my sort of first foray into the long distance triathlon happened. And I can't even tell you how old I was. I'm, I'm terrible with dates. I've got um, a note here. You, you, you won the uh, overall age group in New Zealand, and that was in 2014. Uh, I would have been way earlier than that. Yeah, um, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah two th probably about 2000 and 2007 maybe or wow. something like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've, it was, got great, remember, you've got a great history, haven't you? You've, got, you've won some big races, haven't you? Well, as an age grouper. Yeah. <laughs> but, but dude, still, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I have. Um, and... Uh, and I'm quite proud of, uh, quietly proud of the success that I had as an age group athlete. Uh, I, I do think that I've done some things that that may not have be repeated that often as a New Zealander, you know. Um, but I think it comes down to being, a, like I'm a, a, so incredibly passionate about understanding how to train, how to train better, uh, you know, I've done a lot of uh, research. Um, I, I'm actually quite surprised at how passionate I am and how, uh, uh, you know, how, what kind of thirst I have for new knowledge and training. And I've always had that. And I've applied it to myself before I've applied it to, to athletes that I coach. Um, and as a result of it, you know, I've had many years of, of working out what works and what doesn't work. So, you know, I'm, I coach a lot of professional athletes now. I've had a lot of success as a coach, um, but a lot of what I've learned was, you know, trial and error on myself first and foremost. Yeah, so I have to agree with you. You do have an amazing passion for the sport and it comes out every time I hear you on your podcast or you're talking or you're interviewed and it's just, it's just great. And I was talking to Dr. John Hellerman, Hellerman's a little while ago and he, yep. he actually, he's a bright guy. He's a, he's a hardworking dude too. And he's just got... Yeah. Grip. He's just a tenacious bastard. He really is. Yeah. But he he loves Kiwis because he loves yeah. how, like you're just saying, you're a sponge for information, and he loves that about Kiwi. We'll try anything if we hear something, we'll give it a go. We're not scared to have a shot at new ideas, are we? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, and it's always, I mean, two. One of the things that uh, getting older has taught me is not to not to jump around too much uh, in terms of ideas. But a few years ago, I used to, you know, be going down one pathway to another. The self experimentation that <laughs> I've probably slowed it up a little bit now because I'm not uh, competing myself. But I mean, I've tried a lot, <laughs> a lot yeah. of fairly radical things. Um, but but in all honesty, it has led me to being able to filter out what works and what doesn't and if you're an n equals one experiment um you know and, and the funny thing is is i've never been afraid to fail um okay. I, i'm not uh you know i can finish last at a new zealand ironman because i've i've cocked something up 
um, and I've I've spent a couple of Ironmans cocking things up quite spectacularly. Uh, so if you can't, if you're not afraid to fail, then you will be prepared to try some new things. Um, and and that's I think one of the things that's helped me, or helped me as an athlete, but definitely helped me as a coach. Let's jump to 2014 when you did win that race. What was that like? Oh, you know, um, I don't, I really don't. I don't want this to sound like I'm uh, trying to be this really humble Kiwi as such, but do you know I'm really bad on stats and figures and I, I don't spend a lot of time, like I don't have uh, any of my medals, I don't have, I, I wouldn't even know where anything was from any of my races because to me the sense of satisfaction is, in, is very much in, uh, internal Okay. Um, and, but, but look, and equally so, look, I'm immensely proud of some of the races, uh, you know, like I've, I remember people that, you know, really, really well. Um, you know, I remember when Scott Molina, uh, was the first person at, uh, 40 maybe to, to go under like nine hours at an Ironman in New Zealand. And I looked at that and went, right, I'm going to go better than that. <laughs> and, and, and the same with uh, Dr. Matt Brick. Um, he, he, I think he cracked nine hours at New Zealand Ironman, um, all those sorts of different uh, things. But, but I always, uh, I sort of made my way to the top of the age group racing um, fairly not slowly, but, but just a little bit over time. And I put the foundations in place and I just ended up being able to develop a, uh, an internal confidence that meant that when I stood on the start line and I'd done the preparation that I knew that I needed to do, I would pretty much get the result that I was hoping to achieve. And so the funny thing about Ironman, and I'll always say this about Ironman, if you've prepared really well, and you know how to race an Ironman, then it's actually a particularly boring exercise because you have to wait. And let's say, for example, um, like if you're going to try to go under nine hours, you have to wait almost nine hours before you get the result you knew you were going to get. Yeah. So, so yeah. I found that um, that wasn't as much of a surprise when I had success as, as and that's a good thing. Because, you know, perfect preparation, you know, prevents yeah. piss poor performance sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I, am, I am proud of, of being a very successful But as I say, it's, um, it was all in the context of the preparation. Well, ADR's 48 still pretty damn good in 2016. <laughs> Got to give you that one. <laughs> yeah, Tell well, me, that was, yeah, that was, was good. That was very, that's yeah. very good. Tell me then, low-carb, healthy fat or yep. high fat or whatever you like to call it, LCHF. What got yep. you onto that bandwagon and, and how's, how has it worked? How did it work? How is it working? Because you do a lot of research around nutrition. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Oh, look, um, uh, I'm not going to say that I was one of the, the very first adopters, especially here in New Zealand, but um, I, I know I was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I sure. do, and I And I actually do, you know, when I trace the, the lineage back, um, you know, I was uh, one of the first people I know with Mickey Willardin who co-hosts our podcast. Um, I remember going to Mickey and saying, look, I'm looking at this research at the moment. And, um, you know, uh, I believe that uh, we, we might have this nutrition thing wrong in ultra-distance sport. There's enough evidence to suggest even before 
uh, it got more popularized, you know, like Dave Scott was, was, uh, sorry, um, Mark Allen, uh, Phil Maffetone, um, you know, Paul and Yubi Fraser, uh, they were all looking at fats as a, as a big part of their diet and, and bringing it into their performance. And you can't deny they were fantastic athletes. So, so when we started looking into it, um, it, like anything, being afraid, being brave enough to say, "Hey, we might have got this wrong," um, and and I've and, and I've come even full circle from way back then um, to saying that that periodized nutrition and and periods of uh, low low carb, higher fat, along with some some phases of a bit more higher carbohydrate, could be the best marriage of both beliefs, um, nutritional mm. beliefs, but. Um, it doesn't take a rocket science to, scientist to watch any Ironman and go, 25% of the field are running the entire marathon. 75% of the field aren't, but those people did the training. So those people, they didn't skimp the training. Like if you went and canvassed them, all of them believed they were going to run the entire marathon. And, but they're not, and you can't put it down to poor pacing all the time. So there's got to be a metabolic factor involved in all of this. And um, having access to some uh, brilliant people, much smarter than me, asking them the questions, going into the sports science labs, testing metabolic um, function under performance or exercise conditions. All of a sudden, we started to see that the equation was quite simply, um, people were having great difficulty in metabolizing their fat stores at low intensity. And if we were going to race an Ironman at low intensity and people were going to have difficulty um, supporting that, that, level of, that level of intensity with predominantly their fat stores, then doesn't matter how fit they got, they were going to run out of fuel before the end of the, the before the end of the um, event that they were training for. And when you run out of fuel, stop moving forward. Yeah. So that that question was quite obviously um, potentially answered by LCHF or looking at ways of changing metabolic efficiency. Um, and training can do that as much as nutrition can. But if you know how to balance both of them, you'll get a better return on investment. Um, but then look at where we are now in terms of the low carb, high fat conversation. It's by no means something that's unfamiliar with the endurance population around the world. Um, a good friend of mine, Dan Plews, you know, um, world record holder at uh, Kona as an age group athlete, uh, very big proponent of, of the low carb, high fat message. Um, and there's plenty of other uh, coaches and nutritionists out there that, that are pushing this uh, this back, this bandwagon now, and you know, if you, yeah, I, I, I think understanding both its performance benefits, but also the fact that it does lead on to some pretty good health outcomes as well. Uh, and Dave, you'll be the first one to admit yourself. Absolutely. You. <laughs> I know. That's going to say. I mean, for me, Mickey Willardin saved my butt. Um, I've talked to Dan Plews again. He's another smart yeah. cookie. Uh, you work a lot with Prof Schofield. I mean, there's yep. my, my, only, my only, if anyone ever asks me, I say, you can research, you can read, you can analyze it, but you need to talk to somebody who knows this stuff better than you do. Like yep. you say, smart people around me have helped me yep. get to where I am today. And it just, 
been life-changing, absolutely life-changing. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and not just from, like, I, I'm really big on people understanding, and, and it's a very difficult conversation to have because you, you say the word fat and it, and it just conjures an unhealthy uh, thought process in, an, in, a, in a human being and an athlete. And that, that, that convincing an athlete that actually fat, when it's eaten without the presence of highly refined carbohydrate, has very little, um, if any, poor health outcomes. Mm, um, it's, the, it's the insulin response to carbohydrate that makes fat uh, a bad thing sometimes. Um, so it's actually more understanding carbohydrates than it is understanding fats. And if you if you do that, I mean, I'm sure you'll be the first to, to endorse this, but um, your general health outside of your athletic performance has probably improved at the same rate. Oh, can, yeah, no argument. I mean, again, you're right about the carbohydrates. I think people use the word carbs and they get, they've got no understanding of what the carbohydrate word is, the good carb yeah. versus the bad carb. And they just put everything yeah. under the carbon. And they, I'm not yeah. saying they're right or wrong, but from, from what I know, there's a big mm -hmm. distinction and talking to someone with uh, a lot more knowledge and skill around those topics definitely makes yeah. for a much better outcome. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And, and, and that's the thing is, is, is understanding how each macronutrient interacts with metabolism and if they're eaten collectively or if they're eaten in isolation you know when we're talking your proteins your carbs your fats and then understanding um, how quickly carbohydrate is actually metabolized that that explains a lot because it, ultimately it's about the insulin response that we're trying to control um, and that doesn't come down to uh, what the fat's doing it comes down to you know how quickly exactly. that carbohydrates metabolized I'm going, to, I'm going to change something briefly in a minute, but I talked to Matt Bark from UCAN, uh, Generation UCAN yep. the other day, and that's a product that has definitely changed people's thinking. Around. Totally. And, and yep. it's, it's a great thing. He, we had a great conversation. I'll put it up on my podcast soon. But I want to move just not quickly, but to the athletes you're coaching now. Do you, all the professionals in all age groups that you're coaching, do, they, do you have the same conversation around nutrition with them? Is that a key con con content around their coaching? Uh, Yes and no. Um, it's changed a lot, uh, you know, and, and even by our own admission, uh, when we first got onto LCHF, uh, I was pushing it as a panacea for the entire world. <laughs> no. um, and, I, and I wasn't really considering the individual variation as I do now. And that is individual variation between sexes and individual variation between um, athletes. So I, I see it as a tool in the toolbox. Um, it's definitely not something that I would say I prescribe across the, you know, like it to, in order to be coached by Bevan, um, you, and a lot of people already think this, you know, I've been pushing LCHF for a long period of time. So people are like, Oh, I don't really know if that suits me. So I won't approach Bevan for coaching because that's the only thing that he does. Oh, yes. No, I don't, I don't uh, believe that at all. Um, if I, if I talk about athletic performance, then what I'm trying to achieve is a, is a, is a better fat uh, adaptation or, or ability to metabolize their fat stores and 
LCHF is one of the tools in the toolbox. Um, Good for some athletes, it, it's, it, it'll work. For others, not so much. Um, but if we're talking about improving metabolic efficiency, then it was definitely one of the, the big uh, tools that I have at my disposal. But it's not always something that will improve our metabolic efficiency because, as I say, training has as much influence on that as anything. So you just need to know... Um, you know, because I have had uh, some female athletes have poor uh, hormonal outcomes off an LCHF diet, so I'm I'm a little bit less inclined to to prescribe it as a across a population. Um, I'm definitely more using it when it's needed, and on different athletes at different times. It was a great conversation you had on the coaching summit. Um, ah, yes, I, I saw you and listened to you then. That was a it's a huge topic now, isn't it? It's becoming far yeah. more. It is, it is, and it's interesting where females are concerned. Um, there's not enough robust research out there at the moment. Um, there is some, but we need more. And whilst, again, it's uh, the individuality between females, I don't want to uh, apportion, you know, the same belief that every single female, uh, metabolically and physiology, changes during their menstrual cycle because some women are actually very man-like in terms yes. of their capacities to train and not have their training adjusted for their menstrual cycle um, whereas some women uh, do find that there's phases um, you know towards ovulation and, and mid to late luteal phase in their in their menstrual cycle where their performance does drop quite um, substantially and that we do need to make some adjustments there. Mm. So it's one of those things that's really coming back to the fact that no one athlete is the same and that we have to be assessed and trained um, as individuals. But yeah, definitely the female uh, working out how to coach the female is, a, is another um, skill in its own right. Definitely at the elite level that you're coaching, Bev, and I guess see, I just see in the background you've got a Justin McCauley sticker up there. So who who are the pros you're coaching at the moment? Uh, so the pros that I'm coaching at the moment is uh, Jocelyn McCauley and uh, Hannah Wells. Um, there's a young uh, uh, New Zealand uh, pro Jack Moody that's coming up through the ranks, and he's um, he's got a huge amount of talent and is just sort of married you know uh, marrying the the having to work and try to make this professional career uh get that all balanced but he's a wonderful talent i mean he's a 107 half marathon runner um you know like he's uh, got a really good power on the bike and we're just really trying to bring a swim up to speed um i've recently started working with javier gomez's wife um annika jenkins um so she's sort of come on board after a bit of a history of uh some injuries at the itu level but is just moving into um uh the half distance space uh, and then I have a couple of American uh, pros that I'm working with um, one of them is a, a Wisconsin based uh, pro called Patrick Brady as well who's uh, sort of a, a working pro and coach in his own right but is racing sort of um, 70.3 and a little bit of Ironman as well so that's from a pro standpoint it's probably at about as much as I can manage at this stage um, and having 
one or two marquee pros is about as much, and in Hannah and Jocelyn's case, that's about as much as I can um, cope with at any one particular time. So you, you do have a lot on your plate, don't you? you you're coaching, <laughs> you're doing the podcast, you're doing, uh, yeah, you're doing the coffee yeah. club, you're doing all sorts of different. So how do you yeah. balance, how do you how do you get a good day in? I mean, you must be very. Are you disciplined, or does does uh, just, does your, your um, beautiful lady keep yeah, you yeah, on, yeah. come on crack the whip? Yeah, um, I think it's. It, I could be better. I could be better. It's not in my. I'm going to blame it on my star sign. Um, <laughs> but I'm definitely. What, what is your star sign? Aquarius. Oh, yeah, I'm a Sagittarian, yeah, mate. I'm even worse. <laughs> the I, I would say that um, I'm. Uh, uh, I'm very much uh, the art and the. If there's the art and science, I'm. I'm. I read the science, but I'm much more on the art side. Uh, I, I wish I was a little bit more structured and organized in, in how I execute my work on a day-to-day -day basis. But I just really, I've attempted to do that um, in the past and it just doesn't work for me. Mm, okay. um, I, I'm, I, I classically see myself as a little bit more of a free thinker and at any given time, I might be distracted from one, one task to the next, but ultimately I get it done. Um, and the kids are at university. Um, we have... Uh, my partner Chris is involved in the business. She, you know, does the the sound engineer work on the podcast. She does basically outside of me and Mickey talking, the podcast is Chris. Everything else we just dump it in her lap and and off she goes and she does an incredible job on that. Um so I am uh I see myself as the as the coaching side of it and um, the, the people interaction, the relationships, all that kind of stuff is, is my side of it. Chris does a lot of the dotting of the I's and crossing of the T's, but we have seven days a week and 24 hours a day, don't we? Yeah, we do. So, <laughs> so if, if you haven't got kids and the kids have left home, I pretty much maximize that 24 hours a day and seven days a week. How old are your kids, by the way? So 23 and 21. Nice. And they're studying yeah. in Auckland? No. Uh, well, one's have just gone back to university in Auckland. The other one's uh, at Wellington doing her master's in neuro, neuropsychology. In fact, both Chris and I have to continually ask her what she's actually studying because <laughs> It goes straight over our head when she describes it to us. <laughs> she will be the brightest person in the family oh, and is already that way. Yeah. But you, you seem to, um, even, you are spontaneous and that's good, but you get the best out of people. So the coaching is, um, especially the pros, it's very it's rewarding and it's a challenging yeah. thing to do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, Maybe deep down inside me, I always thought that um, I w could become competent enough at, at, as a coach that one day I would be able to work with professional athletes. Um, the, I'm a very big believer in the, in the law of attraction and the fact that if you innately believe something will happen, you will draw good things to you and it will happen. And so, and, and I strongly believe in that. Um, I, I think I, I did as an athlete. Um, I always thought that I could be a very good athlete um, and I never and I, it wasn't in an egotistical way it was just this very safe in the knowledge that um, I felt I was good enough and I and I could if I did things correctly I would be and the same with coaching I think it, it 
it was a little bit slower to feel that I was confident enough to, um, or good enough, um, and had the confidence that I could help a professional. But then funnily enough, they're no different to age groupers. Mm. And, so, and once you realize that, and in, and in point of fact, um, some, and this is by no means a criticism, know no more about the sport than age groupers. Because there are many age groupers who train as much as pros. True. Um, and it's swim, bike, run at the end of the day. And, the, and there is no, the, the fact that pros do it quicker than age groupers doesn't mean that they train differently. And so once I realized that if I believed that I could help the best age groupers in the world, then I think I could help the pros as well. The key that I have learned, however, is that being good at the physiology is paramount. You need that and you need to understand the, the metabolic and physiological demands of the event. But I would suspect that my greatest uh, asset is in relationship building and uh, amateur psychology. So <laughs> I, I, I think that the, the, the last frontier of performance and sometimes the first frontier of performance is defined by what we think and what we do and what we believe. And my, the significant portion of my role as a coach is in the psychology of, of performance and um, training. And I have spent more time uh, in more recent times um, in conversations around racing and life and balance and stress and emotion and decision making as much as I have on here's your swim set, here's your bike workout and here's your run workout. Um, so that's, that's become a very, very integral part of, of making sure that athletes arrive ready to perform. Um, but I don't have a degree in any of those. As I say, I'm, I'm an amateur in all of them. Um, but for some reason, I can bring those things to the table and in a way that athletes respond. And if they trust in you um, and will you both feel that you're on the same trajectory, then ultimately they'll get the best out of themselves as athletes. Mate, see, there's the wisdom there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, it's a, it's an age thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's definitely it's definitely an age thing. And I and look, I mean, I've had some fairly, uh, I've had some incredibly rewarding coaching uh, relationships, um, and also some very testing ones. And both of them are, you know, the same. Uh, you know, look, I mean, I've, I, I, I might even, I don't even know if this is true or not, but um, having coached Braden Curry to fifth place in Kona. Um, I would suspect that that might be one of the better uh, coaching results of any uh, triathlon coach uh, on the male side of, of the sport and long distance triathlon for New Zealanders. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, like uh, in more, in more recent times and, and Braden's a very fascinating athlete to work with. And both Braden and I would, um, would both say that he needed someone that he trusted in uh, and that he felt was writing the right program, but trusting in the coach outside of whether the program was right or wrong was more important than, um, than the program itself. And having someone believe in him 
and give him the the confidence that he was going out there to race to represent us as a partnership um, is the is the is the single most important thing for Braden Curry as an athlete, and uh, and I realised that I could you know I could have given him. 40 different programs, but ultimately that he needed a partnership that felt that um, he was racing for a, a bigger purpose. And that was something that I recognized in him very early on. And if I could make that environment feel like he was representing us as a, as a partnership, then he would, he would, he is a very unique character. He is the last person I would ever want to face as a competitor on the, on the, on the start line because if Braden's there fit, he will turn himself inside out to, to win. And that's you can't ask that of any other athlete, but he needs to believe that he's doing it for more than just himself. Um, and so recognizing that as part, an important part of the coaching process yeah, um, yeah. is, is you know, takes you outside of simply writing a training plan. That's, that's brilliant, mate. Thanks for that. That's a great insight. I know not, it seems to me that the, the why needs to be greater than the how. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like inside the head of an elite athlete, um, in in ninety nine percent of cases, is a it's it's a complete mess, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, in a really lovely way. Um, they are they are they are they are elite athletes for a reason, but they have insecurities, they have anxieties, they have stress, they have pressure, they have confidence. Um, you know, they have uh, lack of confidence. Um, you know, they have egotists. Uh, they have you know. Uh, shy demeanors. There's there's a million yes. different things inside this head, and it's the same for age groupers as professionals. It just so happens professionals are racing for bigger outcomes, but it doesn't mean bigger goals because you know the, the the age group athlete, the you know let's say for those Kona bound athletes, they they have as much of those things going on as their head as the pros. You just need to find a way to to line those things up nicely in a, in a synergistic way that allows the athlete to not become overrun um, and to have that, that computer system malfunction in some way gotcha. um, and, and to bring the stress or the tone of the stress down so that they can, you know, recover from the work that they're doing. Uh, you know, those things ultimately impact what we can get out of ourselves physically and, and working out how to, how to, um, just massage the psychological uh, inputs that, that are affecting an athlete is becomes a big part of the job, uh, oh, a, like an incredibly big part of the job. Mm. Speaking of the job, how the couple of more questions have almost done. I mean, this has been great. How have things gone recently with, with the COVID from your point of view, with no races and how to keep people Ooh. engaged? And Yeah, I would actually say that the... The it's 
I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position in the sense that by the time people maybe arrive at my doorstep for coaching, um, they are fully paid up members of the Triathlon Frothers Society. So they are in the sport for absolute life, <laughs> you know, and we could have a, a, a world war and a holocaust and um, they'll still train because they're, they're just waiting for the next opportunity um, to race. So, so I haven't had a, a difficulty with people sort of going, oh, well, this sport, I'm only in it for a short term um this sport is uh, i'll go off and do something different and i'll come back when the when the landscape's looking a little bit more settled um so that but it doesn't mean that there hasn't been a whole host of uncertainty that's crept into the thinking of the athletes um and i've hacked i I suppose I've transitioned a little bit. Um, very early on, uh, I was quite literally saying, let's get a grip. You know, let's, triathlon hasn't disappeared. You know, up until the advent of triathlon becoming a 12-month year proposition um, with the, the uh, growth of how many events are around the world and all of a sudden, you know, let's say, for example, here in New Zealand, we used to lock down after New Zealand Ironman and 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 bite out the winter and mm -hmm. then come back and do like a race in December. But now we could pop across to Australia half a dozen times and, and do another season of racing. So I've tried to, to say to athletes, um, you know, look, let's just take some perspective on this. Triathlon hasn't disappeared. It just means a little bit of a longer period before we, we do another event. Um, so let's go off and do some single discipline events just to keep the, the race uh, juices flowing as such. However, as we were talking about before we started uh, recording, I do believe that we're in a very uncertain time as to what the what triathlon might return to. Um, and so there has been a little bit of trying to become objective as to we may not get back to um, the, the almost uh, uh, glutton of races that we had. I mean, we just we could have raced every weekend if we had the time yes. and the and the money available to us. That that could be taken away for a period of time. Um, so I'm sort of talking to my athletes and just saying, "Hey, um, it is what it is. Uh, we can, you know, we can angst about it, um, or we can accept it because there's nothing we can do to change it. And if we, the sooner we accept it, and we might find that we end up having to." like to, to satisfy those competitive urges, do a little bit more single discipline racing. Um, do some maybe half marathons or marathons during the summer season. Um, if you want to race a little bit more often, uh, it, let's get into some open water events. You know, let's, uh, let's do a little bit more bike racing. Um, let's think a little bit laterally. Is there some off-road stuff that you've never done before that you might want to have a crack at? Because until we see um, possibly the return to more racing, um, which could be a long way off, um, we just need to think a little bit more outside the box as to what racing means to us and how we might be able to satisfy or scratch that itch a little bit better in the meantime because if you're going to stay in the sport then you can only uh, as I say look over your shoulder so long before that starts to drag you down um, you've got to find out how you can positively um, look to the future and, and work out what does this mean for you as an endurance athlete with maybe triathlete 
being the prominent one, but maybe there's some other endurance events that might light your fire. That's interesting. Has it impacted on your business cash flow? Well, as I say, not so much. Um, right. I, as I'm lucky in the sense that triathlons are very interesting sport. You know, um, there are a lot of one and doneers. You know, you build up, you do a race, uh, you do your Ironman, and then you step away from the sport because it does require a lot of uh, uh, sacrifice for the family and a little bit of self, a lot of selfishness for people who want to do the long distance stuff. Um, you've got to have your, your home environment and your work environment and maybe your life environment really well set up to stay in the sport for a long period of time. Um, but um, luckily enough for me, that that represents the majority of people that I work with. Um, so those people do still see a very, very positive future by staying in as as long distance triathletes so yeah um i'm not someone who's really got a lot of people who are only training for one event and then disappearing so at this stage um things are still okay from That's that perspective great. and you've got the coffee club thing happening as well and that helps yep. in the podcast so tell, tell me before we wind up so you've got yeah you've got fitter radio podcast yep, radio. yep you've got the coffee club which is part of that yep which is part of that Yep. And so people can sign up and get deals and listen to you yep. and get opportunities to race races around when they start again. Yep. What else yep. does the coffee yep. club offer? Uh, so we have a lot of sponsors, discounts, but we're partnered with some um, pretty sizable companies, um, Training Peaks, uh, Recovery Systems. Um, we've, we've just been really fortunate in, the, in that we've uh, been invested in by a large uh, uh, supplement company called MitoQ, which makes a coenzyme Q10 product. And so they've uh, come on board as our uh, lead advertiser and sponsor of the, of, of actually fitter as a, as a coaching business, but with obviously our marketing of their product happening on the podcast. Um, so that, that part of uh, what we do now, and we're a massive believer in, in coenzyme Q10 as a, as a supplement for uh, mitochondrial health and as a byproduct of that heart health for the endurance athlete. Uh, we have a swim squads that we run as well. Um, you know, we've got a, a, we've got a few more prospective initiatives that we're looking to maybe get off the ground, which is in light of this new normal that we're facing, yeah. um, that we just need to maybe transition the business just slightly. Uh, so we're, we're looking at, at, at some other initiatives in that space to maybe reflect um, how the how the how racing and training might change a little bit in the in the short to short to medium term. Um, yeah, but other than that, that's about all I can truly uh, cope with at the moment. I understand, mate. Well, I'll tell you that yeah, you do a lot. You do a lot for a lot of people. It's really good to see. So I'm going to wind up by asking you. Um, I call it my fast five or six or seven, yep. depending on what I'm thinking. So are you ready? Yeah. Yes. What's your favourite meal? Favourite meal? I, when I, I'll stick with it. I, I pretty much uh, I love a good steak um, and nothing wrong with that. I don't think I'll ever change. Started as a kid, haven't deviated from there. Sports car. Favourite sports car? Favourite sports car, actually. Oh, okay. That's probably quite a good... Actually, no, I'm going to give Hannah... Hannah Wells, who I coach, uh, she's sponsored by Subaru. And I'd probably say 
looking at their WRX ranges and having driven in a couple of those, I, I would probably have to go with that. So <laughs> Hannah will love me for saying that. Boy racer. Um, place to visit or holiday? Noosa. Yeah, I think uh, we've, been, we've been going there for the, about the last uh, four or five years to avoid New Zealand winter. So thanks, thanks for reminding me about that. <laughs> Dave. Yes, but, Dave, sorry, but, it, but for something so close to us, it's pretty cool. uh, yeah, it's a fantastic place to train it. Running shoe, favorite running shoe. Favorite running shoe. What's the best running shoe I think I've ever run in? What would be my favorites? Yeah, I I, I do like a good Nike, I, and I'm not going to say with their their new uh, carbon fiber plated ones. Never run in them, no. um, but I would just say a good stock standard Pegasus, which I'm running in at the moment, as being probably the best you know, bang for your buck for me as a runner. You injury free at the moment? I am injury free at the moment. That's Good what uh, moving away from ultra distance triathlon <laughs> does for you. Though. And a bit of strength training. Yeah. I love the strength. It's brilliant. I tell you yeah. what, I've got my weights. I've got my weights out here in the, in the garage. I'd, every Perfect. Day. Yep. Okay. Don't last miss one. It. Favorite mom. Are you watching a special TV program at the moment or a series or anything or a favorite movie? Uh, at the moment, actually, we've just finished a really good BBC uh, sort of uh, drama called Guilt. Okay, it's a four it's a four episode series, and it, I do like a good. I've got a penchant for the UK uh, TV drama. I like a good um, lighthearted American uh, sitcom or comedy where you don't have to think too much for it. <laughs> but I just watched Guilt and we and uh, Chris and I thoroughly enjoyed that. So that's that's our most recent um, pleasure that we've been watching because, man, COVID's made us watch a bit more TV than we normally <laughs> Netflix, do. Netflix is getting spent. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Favourite race? Favorite race, okay. Favorite ever challenge, Wanaka. Yeah, is it good? Yeah, yeah. Challenge Wanaka. Yeah, challenge Wanaka. The old iron uh, iron distance race there. It doesn't matter which course they put it on. From a scenic race, and even the half, uh, it is the most scenic and honest race that you can ever uh, hope to do. Um, yeah, would. No, would no. Would recommend anyone to go and do that race, and it's not brutally hot. No, so, true. They have changed the course, though. Yeah, they have changed the course. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah I know. It's we, bloody we, interesting. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we, we won't comment on that. We'll just wait and see. <laughs> wait and see. I, we did that at the end of Epic Camp once, and we were the 2007, the first one they ever did. And yeah. I was put into a team, right, to do the bike ride down to the oh. gorge and, on that oh, big oh. chip. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a, that was a year I got third at 40 years of age. I got third in the pro race in the full distance there. And we rode all the way down to Cromwell yes. at about 55 k's an hour with a tailwind. tailwind. And we came back on the rough chip at about, oh. about 15 k's an hour. And I remember distinctly trying to make a break from the group that I was in. And I lifted it to like 15.3 Ks an hour and it took me 45 minutes to edge my way off the, the front of the group. But it was a decisive break because it yeah. would have taken them 45 minutes to bridge back up again. <laughs> oh, it's a great place. Hey, Devin, this yeah. has been really enjoyable. Thank you. So, look, you're a busy guy and I know you're on the air every week, but this has been a great insight to you and hopefully... Um, 
part of the reason I do this is that we, we forget the stories. We forget where people come from. And yeah. I did an interview recently with a guy from the SBS bank and he's yeah. put it out to his staff because they don't, had no idea how the business started. He's gone from zero to 1.5 billion under management. And, wow. and, and look at you, you know, you started yeah. racing at 16 and now you're almost 50 professional yeah. coach professionals. It's, it's, a, it's a great story. So thank you very much for sharing your time and your, ta- and your talents with us today. No problems. My pleasure, Dave. And of course, I always finish with Aloha as I look out and see the ocean out there. Oh, yeah, you're my own, you're the only person that we can talk to that's going to see Kona this year. There'll be no race, but at least you'll see it. <laughs> exactly right. Hey, listen, I might also um, tap you on the shoulder soon um, in, a, in a six months, seven months time or maybe sometime yep. soon to see how things are and how life has um, trans- yep. got, got become more apparent of where we're going to be in this crazy old world of ours. Totally. Okay, Ben. That's great. Thanks again, Bevan. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much.